I see that dessert's been served, and we ran a little bit over time with the presentations, so we'll be a little late getting started with the questions. Uh, but first, let's have a little bit of information on next week's session, and uh, there's another session of potential interest to uh, people here. Next week's session will be a presentation from Cosmos Vucinos. He will speak to Sustainable Energy Without Hot Air, A Time for Action. And uh, I know enough about it to appreciate it that it will be complimentary to our presentation today. Uh, Ralph Thrall, Jr. will be the moderator next week. Now, there's another presentation that people here might be interested in. It's put on by the Students' Union at U of L. They have Peter Mansbridge, the uh, news anchor from CBC, and I I'm not sure whether he's retiring or not. Uh, news anchors are all retiring, but maybe Peter's still on the job. He's going to talk at the U of L on, uh, I've got a date here somewhere. October 19th, this coming Tuesday, at noon, at the University of Lethbridge First Choice Savings Center. It costs $5, and the proceeds will go to the uh, University of Lethbridge Student Union Food Bank. Okay, I see Don's finished his dinner now. Our topic today is carbon capture and storage in Canada. Our speaker is Professor Don Lawton, and I ask him to come back to the podium. It's, uh, please come to the microphone over here. Remember to state your name, keep your comments brief, and your questions succinct. And remember, no questions from the floor, please, as we're recording them for the website. It's yours again, Don. Thanks, Dwayne. Yeah, go ahead. Testing, testing. Am I on air or? I think so. Yeah. Is this on? Okay. I I can't tell. Hmm. My name is Henning Mundell, and uh, my question to you relates to you showed seismic uh, views, but I I want to ask about what kind of mitigation. And in terms of and monitoring and mitigation can be done in relation to potential seismic activity, whether it's volcanic or uh, uh, or tectonic plates coming together. Mm -hmm. The Rockies aren't that old. Sure, uh, very good question, and uh, happy to, to give some opinions on it. Uh, what we look at when we're selecting a site for storing CO2 is that it's in a uh, what we call a seismically quiet area. Uh, and that's on a time, time scale of geological time, in other words, tens of millions of years, not just human history years. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a lot of discussion in California where there's, there's lots of earthquakes and active faults, so it's unlikely that we'll see large CCS projects in California because of the concern about uh, if there's an earthquake, there's a movement on a fault that will create a leakage path. Uh, here in Alberta, uh, we've been recording what we call seismicity 
for uh, the last, well, nearly 100 years. And there are occasionally very small earthquakes that are in the province, uh, but it's, it's believed by uh, our modelers of rock stiffness or rock strength that any earthquakes of magnitude 2 or less would, uh, would not create any faults that would be a leakage path to the surface. But, but certainly the whole topic of what's called induced seismicity, that if you, you're pressuring up a horizon, will you create a fault? Uh, that is regulated, actually, by, uh, by the province. Uh, you're not allowed to inject at a pressure that would be known to create a fracture in the seal that overlies the rock. So uh, the chance of getting faults caused by the injection is, is extremely low because we have to control those pressures. So the short answer to your question is that we, we pick the sites where the, there are unlikely to be events. You know, the, the Rocky Mountains are old enough that we don't think there's any activity still going to be continuing. And then we monitor the pressures to ensure that we're not going to create faults that would be leakage pathways. I'm short. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I would like to thank you very much for, for a, a very informative presentation. My name okay. is Frances Schultz. One of my concerns was when you talked about the, the saline areas being mm -hmm. an excellent source to pump this into, mm -hmm. my question is um, if, how saturated is that saline solution? How absorbent is it to the, to the carbon dioxide? what kind of pressure you have to put in, what's the net result of energy, because you're going to have to put, use energy to pump it down there and force mm -hmm, it in. Mm -hmm. And are there any chemical reactions that would happen? Uh, yes, again, a very uh, good question, Francis, from what we call the geochemistry side. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, salt water, uh, even if it's really salty, is still capable of... A, of you can dissolve a lot of CO2 into it. That happens as a natural process, uh, and ultimately the safest storage of CO2 is when it is dissolved in these saline waters. What is currently not as well known is how long that takes. So the, uh, the chemists in the world are looking closely at, uh, at given certain types of, of saline, saline fluids what is the predicted length of time it'll take to dissolve all of that CO2 into the waters? And it ranges from you know, tens of years to hundreds of years. So in the, in the meantime, we need to ensure that the CO2, which is not dissolved, is not going to bubble out because it's, it's a buoyant gas. It's less dense than the rest. Uh, so we're fairly sure that the uh, CO2 will dissolve, just a matter how long it takes. Uh, the CO2 will also react with the rocks in which the, these fluids are contained, uh, and that's called mineral trapping. So, uh, so you first dissolve the CO2 in the water, uh, then the water itself reacts with the, all the grains of sand, if you like, in the rock, and actually precipitates as, as, as limestone. So that is you know, where, what happens to the CO2. So that is, on the safety side, we know that that'll happen. Now, the cost penalty to actually inject it at pressure uh, is probably about 15% or so. If you think of a, of a coal-fired power station, then the additional cost to capture the CO2, to pipeline it to a site, to inject it at pressure, 
is uh, about 15%, and that's captured in those, the cost table that I showed that will be adding two or three cents a kilowatt hour to your power bill. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I found it a very fascinating research field that you're involved in. And uh, I guess I'm, I have sort of two questions. Uh, mm. I'm wondering how uh, you're going to levy the costs of this uh, carbon capture sequestering uh, requirement. Uh, you seem to think two or three cents a kilowatt hour might be doable. And I wonder if there's other avenues that might fund this also. And uh, I wonder if there's anything to the symbolism with horses uh, there and horse flatulence. Mm. <laughs> just uh, just yeah. one second. Uh, uh, Ron, you didn't give your name. The speaker, the questioner is Ron Renwick. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the cost is something that, that is, you know, of course, a, a major concern. There are other ways to do it, and uh, uh, the standard approach would be to use the word carbon tax. And uh, that is uh, typically one that is not met with a lot of support. Uh, interestingly, I was uh, two weeks ago in New Zealand, which is the country I grew up in, and while I was there, uh, there was a, f a four cents per liter tax placed on gasoline. Uh, it's called the ETS, or Emissions Trading Scheme. It's part of the approach of that country to uh, dealing with the, the emissions costs. Uh, so it's part of a, a cap-and-trade system. So that was an implementation of rather, rather than adding it to a power bill, you added it to the field bill. And that is also um, a strategy, strategy that's being used by the government of BC. There's a, there's a fuel tax that is for carbon reductions. It's mitigated supposedly by a reduction in personal income tax so that if you're an av you, know, you drive an average number of kilometers per year, it should be about neutral. But uh, and the reality is that there will be a cost. So the question that I ask back is, what is the cost of doing nothing? Uh, if we have con you know, climate change that is being caused significantly by anthropogenic sources or us, we'll see more crazy weather. You know, each a major storm can be a $2 billion uh, cost. So it's the cost of doing something or the cost of doing nothing in terms of uh, uh, impact costs of, of climate change. So I hope that sort of gives you some feelings for, for what that would be. Hi, uh, my name is Gene Olexson. Uh, I'd just mm. like you to comment on, um, you talked about oil and gas fields and mm -hmm. uh, using depleted oil and gas fields to sequester uh, uh, CO2. Uh, it's my understanding a lot of oil and gas fields have, have been fracked to produce oil and gas, and how that would uh, would that compromise the integrity of the geological formation uh, to uh, sequester the CO2? Uh, as long as they're being fracked, uh, according to the regulatory protocols, they should be uh, uh, very safe for storage of CO2, because when those oil fields are fracked and... Uh, Rob is an oil field engineer. He can perhaps uh, jump in if he feels inclined as well. Uh, you are not permitted to, to frack the cap rock of the, of the field. So uh, as long as those regulatory protocols are being followed, uh, then you should be able to uh, store CO2 in those same fields that have been fracked. 
Now, in, in the modern area, you've probably heard about shale gas, uh, where you have thick sequences of shales that are, have, uh, have very significant fracks, or what, what fracking is, and just to back up for a second, is that you inject uh, some sort of fluid into a well at very high pressure, so it actually physically breaks all the rocks around the well, and those cracks allow the oil to flow to the well to be produced. Um, so for shale, because shale holds gas so tightly within itself, you really have to crush it to pieces. So you inject at very high pressures, you, you, you frack over a very large area, uh, and in that case, then, you would probably not want to use a shale gas fracked area to be storing CO2 because it will travel up into the uh, higher units. But for conventional fracks of, of oil and gas fields that we're used to looking at uh, in traditional basins, uh, we, we should not expect uh, fractures to be into, into the seals above the fields. Thanks very much. My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for the technical mm -hmm. side. I would like to bring Amanda up and uh, hear a little bit about uh, how it's perceived out in the world or in the communities. Uh, how's the, are you getting any flack? Yeah. Well, do you want to come on up, Amanda? Well, thank you. So public acceptance is a very important part of this whole process, and it has been perceived differently in different areas. The majority of the CCS projects around the world have been met with a lot of acceptance, and there's been, um, well, some communities are quite proud to have this pro these kind of projects around, that they are showing that they're doing some, some work to reduce CO2, However, there has been some flack, definitely. I can name a couple of projects, and it depends on things like past experiences. Do they trust the industries that are building these sources? Do they believe that there really needs to be a reduction of CO2? Because if they don't believe that there needs to be, then it's pretty hard to uh, say that CCS is a good thing for the community. I'll just uh, add another couple of comments. There's been some pushback on some projects in Europe uh, because of the population density. Some of the uh, zones that were going to be used for CCS were right under, uh, one was under Rotterdam, uh, another case uh, close to cities. So, um, you know, those, there was concerns uh, about developing these projects in densely populated areas. And uh, I think, as Amanda alluded to, a lot of the important issues is to, is to ensure that the risk communication is properly done and that uh, uh, you don't try to hide anything. You talk about the risks and you, you talk about why it's, uh, we think it's a safe technology to be done in a certain site, but not uh, try to be a smoke and mirrors uh, uh, type of project that you don't be uh, fully transparent with, with how those risks are assessed. My name is Mark Sandy Lands, and thank you for the very uh, interesting presentation. A couple of questions. Uh, I understand that governments, uh, Alberta and Ottawa, have set aside $2 billion for uh, CCS research. Should be farther away or closer, Lisa? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, $2 billion for research on this. Uh, we have uh, what economists call an externality with the uh, carbon dioxide uh, being produced by uh, power plants and uh, Fort McMurray. Um, what proportion of money is uh, industry putting into this? And uh, the second question is, uh, is there any possibility of CCS being uh, used to mitigate the uh, CO2, CO2 production production out of the oil sands projects? Uh, yes, I, I can answer those. Um, first, just to clarify, the, the $2 billion is, is coming from the province of Alberta. It's actually not for research, but it's to, it's to implement commercial-scale projects. Uh, we'd like it to come to research, believe me, <laughs> as a university person, but uh, uh, they are funding these four projects to actually uh, contractually be uh, injecting commercial scale at a commercial scale by 2015. So these companies are under the gun to be uh, developing their technologies and sites uh, so that they can reach that target by 2015 then there's going to be a cost penalty to them. Uh, I should also point out that the companies uh, are also putting in large amounts of their own funds. Uh, the $2 billion is not enough to actually implement the site. So um, if you go to the various websites, they talk about the, the investment by the companies themselves and their partners in these projects to actually make them feasible. Uh, because these these are capitally you know the, the capital cost to build a, a capture facility is is large so um, there is a lot of industry funding going into uh, into you know, supplementing the two billion that's from the province the federal government is uh, probably putting in uh, about eight hundred million uh, in addition and that has similar strings attached to, as the provincial money. Uh, from the point of view of, uh, reduction of uh, reductions of emissions from oil sands, the, the likely scenario is that uh, it will be captured and pipelined to suitable sites in the probably in the industrial heartland area. A lot of the bitumen is already pipelined to the industrial heartland around Fort Saskatchewan, and therefore CO2 will be stripped and captured there and injected locally. So the mitigation from, from oil sands uh, is to uh, separate it at the, get, at the bitumen processing centers. So that's part of the whole package, yes. And certainly the Shell project, uh, the CO2 will come from the Scottford upgrader, which is upgrading uh, bitumen. Uh, Pro Professor Lawton, thank you for the real experience. Look at this new project. Uh, many people in the know claim that this is a cop-out for the CCS, a cop-out for the provincial and, gov and federal governments uh, in respect to what they've allowed to happen at the tar sands, okay? Mm -hmm. The question's coming. What is it? Your name, please. Frank Toth. Starting to know me a little bit here. I'm the yapper. But at any rate, we know that uh, statistics show that 76% of all oil and gas wells, the 300,000 that you mentioned, 76% are leaking from real authority. Real educated scientists have said that. 23% has never even been closed because Alberta law doesn't force them to close. They don't even try to seal it. And the, 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 the 
the leakage is not uh, basically uh, about carbon leakage. It is the, the CO2 and the other 20 uh, uh, other gases, very harmful gases mm. that are 23 times as dangerous as CO2. And of course, it begs the question, since we're still subsidizing the oil cartels, federally and provincially, and we're paying twice to gas companies and to, to electric companies now with their so-called uh, free trade deal, begs the question, who in the hell is going to pay for all this? We are paying already provincial. Uh, who is paying for it? As a political question, I suppose, but uh, have you any idea who should pay? But we're already paying for it. Well, are you addressing the, the, the costs of uh, carbon mitigation or yes. the costs of, yes. uh, of legacy wells that might leak? Well, the, yeah. This province has been in denial from the start on everything in pollution from flying days on. And they've lied mm. to us, they're leaking left and right. Now, you, you, you don't think we're going to close? shut down more planters and stuff with the leakage of CO2? Well, uh, Frank, can we yeah. come to a question, please? Do you want to hear an answer on the legacy oil? That's the question. Yeah. Who, you're not political, although your college, university, is very political. We know that mm. if you read. Uh, who should pay for this? Who should pay for the cost? Uh, well, somebody has to pay for it, uh, but I'd like to back up and address some of the concerns that uh, contribute to the cost side. Uh, uh, there is a, actually a very stringent abandonment process for wells in Alberta. It's been in place since the 1950s. Uh, and there, there was a study done in 2007 by the uh, Alberta Research Council looking at the statistics of well leakage in Alberta, and certainly I agree with you that there are wells that leak, but I have to dispute your, the number that you discuss. Uh, the statistics show that uh, about 7 to 8 percent of wells have possible leakage with them, and that's detected by actually sampling what's called the casing gas. So you go to a well site of a, even abandoned wells, and you, you measure the gas that's coming out. So be that as it may, I think uh, the number of leaky wells is, uh, is far fewer than I think you alluded to. So on the safety side, I think that's less of an issue, but it's, uh, it's a concern because every site that we might be injecting CO2 into, we want to ensure that the legacy wells, and these are wells that have existed previously, uh, are not or minimized leakage pathways. So the best way to do that is to store the, uh, the CO2 at depths greater than all of these wells. And if you take a map of Alberta and you plot all the 300,000 wells on, it's covered with dots. You then say, well, let's look at all the wells that uh, were less than 1,000 meters deep, and the number of wells is about half. You look at the number of wells that penetrated to these really deep saline aquifers, and there's a few dots around the map. So I think the concept of having thousands of leaky wells is only relevant if, if we look at storing CO2 very shallow. So if we store it deep, uh, we need to know where those wells are so we can remediate them if, if they are shown to be leaking. So that's, I think, the first part of your discussion. Now, the second part uh, is the cost of doing nothing. Uh, and this applies not just to Alberta, but, but internationally. 
So we as consumers of energy ultimately have to pay one way or the other. Uh, Let's go on well, to the next uh, question, please. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'll come back and answer it later if there's an opportunity. I'm Lord Toy. I um, <clears throat> certainly compliment you on this mm. work. I think it's good. It's, it's too bad that uh, part of that $2 billion hadn't been diverted to projects such as this. Um, but I would like you to make some comments, if you could, Hmm. on how this uh, particular uh, niche of research fits in with that big old ocean out there, which obviously is a, a saltwater operation, and mm -hmm. it stores a lot of CO2, as I understand it. And, of course, under global warming, presumably some of this stuff is going to be liberated. So my question really is, how does this work fit into this larger picture that I'm trying to paint? Oh, very good question, Lawrence. I think uh, it's, it's one part of the silver buckshot uh, that we're looking at. And uh, certainly, uh, oceans are a sink of CO2. And there's been discussions about <coughs> actually storing CO2 in the oceans. If you uh, pipe, take CO2 in a pipeline and then tap it deep in the ocean, the CO2 will stay in there. It, it won't evolve to the surface. It will dissolve in the ocean, but the, the downside is that you'll, you will acidify the oceans. And that's already being seen as part of uh, uh, looking at the ocean system and the whole uh, climate cycle, that the, as the CO2 level is rising, uh, the oceans are getting more acidic, and we we'll see the impact on coral reefs and, and, and fish life. So uh, using this, uh, the oceans as a, as a sink for CO2 that we produce during our activities is really no longer on the table. Uh, so it's one. the second part of your question is the natural you know, uh, CO2 coming out of the oceans. Yes, but at a much lower rate than we're, we're uh, uh, producing it uh, through our fossil fuel combustion systems. Thank you. Terry mm. Shillington, thank you very much for your really helpful mm. uh, presentation. Uh, I'm not sure you can answer my question, but I'd be interested in hearing you reflect about it because I mm. think it's partly political. But um, it's obvious to us who watch the environment uh, and industry's operation that the weak link in much of this is government monitoring and regulation uh, because it's very easy to cut back on that side of uh, government administration and, and it's hard, hard for mm -hmm. the voters to recognize. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to hear you reflect about that and how critical is government monitoring and regulation for the effectiveness and the long-term <clears throat> viability of this project? Uh, again, this is a very real issue that uh, I think the governments are looking at. Uh, and I think the, the recent uh, incident in the Gulf of Mexico is a, is a with BP, the oil well, there is, a, is a, an exact case where the regulatory agency was not on the ball. Uh, one of the reasons why CCS is, is slower than we think being developed here in the province is that the regulatory agencies themselves have not, have not staffed up with either the people or the knowledge base necessary to monitor the programs. They currently are addressing that. Uh, I had a meeting with Alberta Energy about a month ago, and they're, they're uh, developing their staff. So that's one reason why some of these topics such as uh, uh, poor space ownership, 
and the long-term liability of a, of, a, of a CO2 injection well have not yet been resolved because the government themselves, and this applies not only to Alberta, but it's the same in Australia, in the UK, and in parts of the US, uh, the regulatory agencies don't feel comfortable enough yet with the regulatory environment in which to allow these projects to go ahead. And I think the expectations from the public is that they will not want those projects to go ahead until the regulators uh, are comfortable with allowing them to go ahead and be able to monitor the, the ongoing operations. In terms of conventional oil and gas, the ERCB has a, has a very, I think, strong record of, of monitoring uh, traditional oil and ga uh, gas exploration and particularly drilling of wells. And if they reach that same level of regulatory authority in CCS, then I think we'll all be comfortable with it. But currently, they're still uh, scrambling to catch up. But I think the, the goal is to. Yeah. We, we have yeah. time for one more recorded question. And I'd ask those of you like Mr. Toth who have mm. more questions to please come up after we're finished and you can speak off the record with our presenter and his helpers. Go ahead. Mm. I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Thank you very much mm. for your talk. <clears throat> I appreciate how you uh, put it together in uh, uh, very clear format with the, with the schema schematas and so on. Um, I'm also happy that you don't want to acidify our oceans anymore and kill all the wildlife that's uh, living there. Um, I'd like to ask a question to your chemistry side of yourself. And that is, you talk about sequestering the CO2 in salts. Why not, <clears throat> when you're scrubbing the CO2 from the nitrogen right at the source, immediately bind it so that the CO2 is bound with another chemical and that the byproducts are O2 and a salt. Uh, yes, excellent. We'd like to do that. Uh, it, it's possible, and there's a huge research effort going to actually uh, store carbon directly from, from uh, energy-generating systems. And uh, right now, we see CCS taking the carbon dioxide and, and injecting it deep underground is really a, a bridging technology until we have the capabilities that you describe at a scale that can make a difference. And there's a, currently a huge research effort uh, uh, in an area of chemistry known as metal organic frameworks, which are uh, compounds that will suck CO2 and store huge quantities in their frameworks. So we could look at that and say, uh, I'm not sure what sort of a re recycling program you have here in, in Lethbridge, <coughs> but at Calgary they've, they've started uh, recently with blue bins and green bins and what have you where you can put uh, various recyclable components. So uh, if we want to look into the, into the future, here's a scenario that you could have, instead of a furnace in your house, you could have an energy system uh, such as a fuel cell uh, that produces actually a pure CO2 stream that could go into a, another bucket that creates uh, a stored carbon in a solid compound, and every week you put that out as a, as a black bin beside your blue and green bin, and that will be collected, and then that could be stored as a solid somewhere uh, and not be dissolved. So, uh, yes, there is, I think, a lot of effort in the chemistry side to... Uh, be able to capture CO2, carbon in a way that doesn't involve CCS or other, t other technologies. So it is, it, it's there, but the scale 
to be able to do it in order to meet the objectives by 2050 is, is not there yet, but it's one of the, it's one of the silver buckshot balls. Maybe we need a huge prize for the young, bright mind that comes up with that. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for that mm. last question, Bev. Mm. And uh, I think we'll wrap up the recorded session here now. Let's thank uh, Don and Rob and Amanda for their input today. Thank you.